of uh, Judah from the days of David until their exile in uh, Babylon. Um, We saw these things about uh, the volume Chronicles last time, that there is no stated author of Chronicles, although many scholars believe that uh, Ezra is the author of uh, Chronicles and also the uh, sort of uh, sister books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We talked last month about uh, the dating of the book of Chronicles, and uh, there are two different ways to think about the date of Chronicles. You can think about the date of the events of the book and then the date of the writing of the book. Now, the events of the book of Chronicles take place largely during the reign of David through the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah and end with the people of Judah being taken into exile in Babylon. And so it covers the years from approximately 1000 BC to uh, the uh, late 500s BC. Now, the date of its writing, however, is significantly later uh, than, than the, the total course of the events there. So very likely uh, in the 5th century, so the early 400s BC, uh, toward the end of the Babylonian exile period, uh, or early in the period of Judah's return to Israel. Not 100% certain when Chronicles was written, but sometime uh, in, in, that, in that period. You have in your uh, note sheet, your guide for our study tonight, a, a short summary of Chronicles. And this was the same one that we had for First Chronicles, just kind of treating the, the, two, uh, the two halves of the one volume uh, as, as one whole altogether. But Chronicles, as you know, tells the story of Israel's climb to significance and their fall into exile from those years of about 1000 BC to 597 BC. Uh, It largely, as we said, covers the southern kingdom of Judah, dealing very little, hardly at all, with the northern kingdom of Israel. Chronicles contains most of the same history as Kings and Samuel. So reading 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, you'll, uh, in kind of parallel with 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll see a lot of repeated information, a lot of overlap between these works. But Chronicles is written specifically from the perspective of a people preparing to return to the land of Israel after exile in Babylon. That's what makes Chronicles different than the history books of Samuel or Kings, that it's from the perspective of people coming back to the land. There are three, I think, major themes in uh, this second volume of the Chronicles, and these you'll see uh, on your on your study guide tonight. First is the importance of the temple. Uh, the temple to God will be built in Second Chronicles by Solomon and uh, the people that he employs to do that. There is the theme of right and wrong worship of God. Uh, in Second Chronicles, the people of Judah are ultimately expelled from the land of uh, from the land of Judah uh, into uh, exile in Babylon because they worshipped God wrongly. And then, thirdly, we see the theme of the need for repentance, which kind of just flows through so much of what we read. Now, we know that all of Scripture falls into or tells the one uh, overarching story of uh, God's work of redemption, God's work of rescuing sinners from their sin. And that redemption history story could be summed up in, in four acts or in four parts. as creation. God creates everything, including human beings in His own image, to know, love, and worship Him. 
Uh, that covers basically chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And then you have the fall, which begins in chapter 3 of Genesis when Adam and Eve eat of that forbidden fruit, disobeying God's uh, only command to them in the garden, thereby bringing a break uh, uh, in their relationship with God, a break to their fellowship with God, and uh, being cast out of the Garden of Eden. And then from that point on, mankind becomes sinful people. Every human being born... Uh, from the union of Adam and Eve, which includes you and me and every other human that has ever lived, is born a sinner. We are fallen. And yet God does not, because of his love for us, leave us in that fallen state or intend to leave us there forever. forever. Rather, he provides a means of redemption, a means of rescue from our, uh, from our sinfulness. And that redemption comes to us in Christ, the very Son of God, who comes as the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. Christ gives his own life for our sins, is raised from the dead, so that all who have faith in him will be uh, saved from their sins, forgiven of them, made right with God, having the effects of the fall totally reversed, and we'll look forward to a day when Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom. He'll come to uh, bring everything to its rightful and perfect end. Now, in the scope of redemption history, where would you place Chronicles? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, where, where would you place it? This is not a rhetorical question. We, this is the audience participation portion. Okay, somewhere around the area of redemption. Why redemption? Okay, because of the theme of, of repentance and God drawing people back to himself. Yeah. Now, redemption is not completed in, uh, in Chronicles, but it's certainly hinted at. It's pointed to. It's, it's uh, foreshadowed uh, very strongly. Other thoughts on, on where we might place Chronicles in redemption history? Okay, between fall and redemption, or there's a little arrow there on your, your note sheet. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I think I would, I would put kind of an amorphous kind of circle uh, around fall and that arrow and maybe like half of redemption or something. If I were to locate Chronicles thematically in, uh, in the scope of God's redemption history, because we do see the effects of, of the fall, the effects of sin in, in graphic display. And we also, though, begin to get some hope uh, some uh, inkling of pointing toward God's work of rescuing sinners by His grace. Now, Chronicles, like so many other books in the Old Testament that we've already looked at in this series, is historical narrative. And so, like other books of historical narrative, there's relatively little in the way of instructive material, like we would have, like say, in Proverbs or, uh, or in the law, direct instruction from God about how to act or, or not to act, what to do or what not to do. Uh, but rather, we learn a lot about God's character and His person by how He deals with people. Um, there is some instruction from God as He speaks to Solomon about uh, constructing the temple and that sort of thing. But in terms of um, um, moral dictates uh, or moral instruction from God, anything that is noted in Second Chronicles is really just uh, repetition from the law, from the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's helpful when uh, studying Chronicles and other books of historical narrative in the Old Testament to ask questions like, what is this text, what is this book of the Bible telling me about God and his character? Right, so focus in on God and who he is and how he, uh, how he acts, how he interacts uh, and reacts and responds to uh, people throughout the course of that book. Ask the second question, what does this text reveal about God's relationship to Israel and, uh, and then subsequently to his people today, the church? What does this text reveal finally about how God deals with people, 
Uh, what does he, how does he interact with us? What does he do with the issues of our sin and things like that? Now, as you open your uh, study guide, you'll see on the inside of the top there just a brief outline of Second Chronicles. And, uh, and when I say brief, I mean brief. It's two lines. Uh, the, bo- second, the book of Second Chronicles can kind of be split into two halves. Chapters 1 through 9, which is the smaller half, uh, uh, detail for us Solomon's reign. You remember Solomon is the son of David uh, who, who sat on the throne after David's death. Solomon's reign and the building of the temple. And then chapters 10 through 29 detail the decline and ultimately the exile of the people of Judah uh, into captivity in Babylon. Now before uh, we turn to the text of Second Chronicles uh, and to what history uh, teaches us in this book, what God's history teaches us, uh, let me uh, pray for us and ask God to bless our time in study. Gracious God, we are privileged to open your word together to be edified by it, to be uh, renewed uh, in our spirits by your word. Holy Spirit, as we give ourselves to the study of that which you have inspired, we ask that you would move in our hearts to respond rightly to you. So as we study tonight where we see the glory of the Father, Holy Spirit, lead us to worship, where we see the the depravity of our sinfulness lead us to repentance. And where we see the goodness and the unlimited nature of your grace in Chronicles lead us to celebration and freedom uh, of the grace that we have received by faith in Jesus. May we all, as a result of having spent time together in your word tonight, uh, look more like Christ, live and love more like him, Jesus. You build your church in this place as we study your word. We ask in your name. Amen. I've titled this sermon, What History Teaches. Chronicles is a, a book of history, but it's a history that's meant to teach us something. We said before that Chronicles is written from the perspective of people returning back to a land that they were previously exiled from. And so we find, uh, we would expect to find in a situation like that, those who are, who are returning seeking to learn something from those who got them in their terrible situation in the first place. And that is precisely what Chronicles does. It tells the history of the people of Judah with a perspective of teaching them about why they were in exile in the first place and what not to repeat as they return to the land. And so the chronicler uh, points out at least three things to us uh, thematically over the course of the book. First is this. The history of Second Chronicles teaches us that there is no limit to God's glory. We see in the pages of Second Chronicles that God is greater, uh, first of all, than the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon is a major character, obviously, uh, around which the first nine chapters of Chronicles sort of centers and revolves. This second volume of Chronicles begins with his reign after his father David's death. And, and we know of the kind of king and uh, kingdom that Solomon ha- was and ruled over. He was very wealthy, and we also know he was very wise. And from the very first verses of the book, though, we see that Second Chronicles is not about the glory of Solomon, but about the glory of the Lord. Look with me at how the book begins, Second Chronicles 1.1. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom. And the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. So even as great as Solomon is and would be, his greatness does not come from himself, but comes from outside of himself. Solomon's greatness is a gift of God whose own glory far surpasses the wealth and wisdom of Solomon. 
Now, though Solomon will amass for himself a huge army, many horses and chariots, a wealth of gold and silver that would rival even that of Jeff Bezos, who is the creator of Amazon and I think currently the most wealthy man in the world, there is still one who is greater than Solomon, God in heaven, the giver of those gifts. Now, in chapter 9 of Second Chronicles, Solomon will receive a special visitor, the queen of uh, Sheba. Some think Sheba may be um, modern-day Ethiopia or something like that. But the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon to see uh, his kingdom and to hear from the wisdom of this wise king whose reputation precedes him. And so she comes, and upon visiting him and seeing, marveling at the wealth and wisdom of this great king, even she cannot but praise the Lord God of Israel who has provided all of this to Solomon and to the people of Israel. Look with me at Second Chronicles 9, verse 8. There the queen of Sheba says this to Solomon, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as a king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon is a great king. Solomon is a glorious king, but there is one who has given all of these things to Solomon who far exceeds him in glory, and that is the God of Israel who called Solomon and equipped and gifted him with all that he would need to become the king that he was. God's glory surpasses that even of this uh, wise and wealthy king of Israel. But we find secondly that the glory of God surpasses even that of the temple that bears his name. God is greater even than the temple where he is worshipped. Now this much should be obvious to us, but it is often overlooked. The temple that Solomon built for the Lord was insanely ornate. Insanely ornate. He imported cedar beams to frame the building and to compose the columns of the uh, of the the temple. There were burnished bronze and the finest gold that that all the world could supply all over this thing. There were massive gilded cherubim. Cherubim are those. Um, uh, sort of uh, angelic type creatures that have the body of a lion and the face of a man and the wings of an eagle. These massive gilded cherubim that stretch their wings across the 30 or 35 foot uh, uh, distance uh, uh, from one wall of the Holy of Holies, the, most, the innermost uh, room of the temple to the other. There was literally no building like the temple in all the world in its day or, or even today for that matter. And yet the glory of the temple was meant only to reflect the much greater glory of the Lord of Israel. Listen to what Solomon says about the building of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 4-6. through 6. Solomon himself says, Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. But this, the house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him, who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Even Solomon recognizes that there's no, no building that can house the Lord, no building that can contain all of his glory, that even the temple, as, as uh, splendid and resplendent as it would be, would only be a limited reflection of the kind of glory that God has. 
Near the end of the completion of the temple, in chapter 6, verse 18, Solomon says this uh, in regards to the temple. Chapter 6, verse 18, he says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This is the abiding and constant picture of God in Chronicles. Bigger than we can imagine, more powerful than any king, stronger than any army, more glorious than all the gold, silver, marble, cedar, and bronze in all of the world. He is holy and sinless and great, and there is no limit to his many perfections. Solomon's wealth is given by God to illustrate that God is the owner and the giver of all things, and the temple marvelously constructed to demonstrate that the one who is worshipped in the temple is far greater and purer still than even the temple itself. Now in all this, the overarching reminder to the Judahites that were returning from exile in Babylon, remember that's who Chronicles is for, uh, its first audience is for those uh, uh, um, descendants of the tribe of Judah who are returning from exile, this overarching reminder to the Judahites that are returning to their homeland is that the Lord God is the only one worthy of worship. These exiles were coming out of a pagan land, and they're returning to a land that had been overrun by pagan influences from within in the centuries prior to them going into exile. And as they return, they're to remember that it is God and Him only that they are to love and to serve, and to depend upon. His glory is limitless, and, o- and alone is worthy of their undivided and unperverted worship. That is what the chronicler is reminding us of, even as he details the wealth and wisdom of Solomon and the glory of the temple, that God is more glorious still. Now, the purpose of this sermon series is to look at whole books of the Bible and then see how, uh, through those books, uh, God and His Word is pointing us to Jesus, who is the, the very center, the, the, the centerpiece and, and, and centrifugal point of all of Scripture. Everything revolves around Him. So see this first Christ connection, if you will, in Second Chronicles, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the greater, more glorious temple and by His Spirit makes believers the temple of His dwelling. We see this theme of the temple all throughout Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and the importance of right worship in that place. But let us not get caught up in the building and instead see what the building is pointing to. The building of the temple is pointing us to the more glorious temple, the more glorious dwelling of God on earth with with men, which is Jesus, the very Son of God, in flesh. And the temple that God now dwells in, in the hearts of everyone who have trusted Christ and in whose lives the Holy Spirit has been placed. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, we have this familiar passage. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show, uh, do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, the temple that they were in in that day was a, a, a temple constructed by Herod uh, after Solomon's temple had been destroyed and then after the second temple had also been destroyed. This temple took 46 years to build and you're going to raise it up in three days, they say to Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 21 says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus himself, understanding, knowing that he is God in flesh, says to those in the temple, look, even this temple is just a shadow of a greater reality, which is God dwelling among you, which is me. You can kill me, and I'll raise this temple up again in three days. Along the same lines uh, there of not only Jesus being the temple, but also the hearts of every believer, the hearts of every person who has submitted to Christ in faith and uh, turned from their sins to trust in Him. We are now also the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 says, uh, Paul saying to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As great and as glorious as Solomon and the temple are, God is more glorious still. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the greater, more glorious temple, and by His Spirit makes believers the temple of His dwelling. History teaches us that there is no limit to God's glory. History teaches us, secondly, though, in Second Chronicles, that there is no limit to man's sinfulness. There's no limit to our sinfulness. There is in Chronicles, particularly this second volume, this Constant contrast between the glory and faithfulness of God and the sinfulness of mankind. A sinfulness that is epitomized by the people of Judah. Now, where the books of First and Second Kings cover the division and conquering of both the northern and southern kingdoms, Chronicles follows, again, only the southern kingdom of Judah after the kingdom divides following Solomon's death. There are some 20 different kings named in Second Chronicles, kings of, of Judah, and their reigns are summarized in, in pretty short fashion. In total, these 20 kings reigned for about 300 years of Judah's history, but there's one consistent thing among all 20 of them. They're all sinners. Some of them are really, really bad sinners. Some of them are of the worst sort. We're introduced first to Solomon's son, who just, you know, right after Solomon dies, he just gets the kingdom started with a bang. Rehoboam, in chapter 10, verses 6 through 11, you can read about him this week. The son of Solomon, the first king of uh, uh, Judah after the split kingdom. Rehoboam takes the foolish advice of his peers over the wisdom of the elders in the court, and he becomes a terrible tyrant. He, he becomes this dictatorial kind of king who forces the people into subjugated labor. After him, we see in chapter 21, uh, Jehoram. Jehoram was a king who married a daughter from the wicked Israelite king Ahab. And Jehoram would build substitute sacrificing locations called high places. And he would lead the people of Judah to worship other gods at those high places. And then we have the worst of all, Manasseh. 
We talked a little bit about Manasseh when we were looking at kings, but he, he's a character worth considering one more time just for how wicked he was and the sinfulness that he displayed in his reign. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. There we read this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them and the law and the statutes and the rules given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh is about as bad as they get in Chronicles, burning his own children as living sacrifices to false gods. Manasseh is not the only one. There are several others who sin and sin in horrible fashion, particularly through uh, leading the people of Judah to worship or allowing them to worship gods that are not the Lord. And not just to worship them within the confines of Israel, but to worship them even within the temple itself. The bad kings are really, really bad, but even the good kings are still pretty bad in Second Chronicles. We'll just run through a quick list of some of the better kings that are mentioned, but the, uh, but, but the major sins even that they commit. Solomon, you see, in I believe chapter 8, marries the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of, of Egypt, right? Uh, and, and we know that Solomon in his life takes for himself many other, hundreds of other wives who are pagan women from uh, other places, other nations surrounding Israel. Through these wives, uh, the worship of false gods uh, enters into the, the patterns of, of life and worship among the people of Israel. And so Solomon, even as wealthy and wise as he is, sins in this way. Asa, who you can read about in chapters 14 and 16, Asa does fairly well in his life, but towards the end of his life, he fails to rely upon the Lord in battle and ends up allying himself with Assyria and is later punished by God for it. Jehoshaphat, who we read about in chapter 20, who was an okay king, entered into a marriage alliance with the wicked king of Israel, Ahaziah, to build a navy to protect them. And so this kind of military alliance with the wicked king of Israel leads him astray. There's a king named Joash, who in chapter 24 murders a prophet, a prophet who was a son of a priest who protected Joash as a child from his murderous great aunt and the daughter of Ahab. 
Hezekiah, who we'll see in a moment, who has some, some really, really high points in his life as a king, Hezekiah will grow prideful in his old age and try to deal with the Lord so as to avoid tragedy in his own day. Almost making a deal with God so as to say, listen, God, so long as there's peace in my day, do whatever you want, right? If you destroy the kingdom, that's fine. Just wait until I'm dead. Josiah, who was another good king in Second Chronicles, the end of his life, arrogantly goes to war against Egypt. Even though Egypt sought no conflict with Judah, the king of Egypt sent an emissary to Josiah to say, hey, listen, Josiah, I've got no beef with you. Just let me pass through your land. I'm fighting with these other guys. There won't be a problem there. Josiah said, no way, Jose, we're going to war. So he goes to war uh, out of pride, and in his pride, he dies in a battle that he didn't even have to fight. For those exiles who are returning to the land after their captivity in Babylon, Second Chronicles serves as a revived caution against the sin of man's own heart. Even the best kings were broken. Even the godliest leaders could not avoid following their hearts to sin. It's not uncommon to hear Christians lament the sinfulness of the world today. Wars, mass shootings, the continued prevalence of substance abuse, exploitation of vulnerable women and children, these things fill the headlines of our newspapers and websites every day. But when compared to the sins of Manasseh, who put his own sons on the fire and sacrificed to idols, is the world really all that much worse today? It would seem to me that man's capacity to do horrid things has not grown a whole lot worse in the 2,500 years or so since the return of the people of Judah to the land of Israel. At this point, there's temptation, I think, for people to look at the wicked kings of Judah or, or even the wickedness of the world around us and to think, at least I'm not that bad, though. The things are really, really bad, but I'm not that bad. To which I would respond in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, even the best kings of Judah were fallen, broken, sinful men who at one point or another rejected the glory of God and their dependence upon Him for their own glory and self-reliance. Sin is pernicious. It is an infection of the soul that has not left one person untouched. So then do not fall prey to the folly, to the foolishness of thinking that you could never sin so badly as these kings. Our hearts are far darker and far deadlier than we would care to admit most times. Even the godliest among us is full of sin and in need of rescue. So here's the second connection to Jesus in Chronicles. And in light of the limitlessness, the unlimited nature of man's sinfulness, we find that Jesus is the righteous king who never fails, whose death pays for the penalty of man's limitless sin. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. By the way, if you were ever wondering what a summary statement for the book of Hebrews would be, very short, it's something like, Jesus is better. He's better than everything. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you are struggling with the unlimited nature of your sin, if you are fighting against the sinful inclinations of your heart each and every day, know today that there is hope for forgiveness of your sins in Jesus, the perfect king who never failed, God in flesh who gave his life as a sacrifice once for all to forgive you of the sins that have separated you from God. Man's sinfulness is without limit, and Christ is the righteous king who pays the penalty for our limitless sin. Third, history teaches us that there is no limit to God's grace. There's no limit to God's glory. There's no limit to our sinfulness. But thank God, praise God, there's also no limit to his grace. And when Solomon prays to dedicate the temple of the Lord as it is freshly completed, He asks God the following in his prayer. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I know we're jumping a lot back and forth. 2 Chronicles 6, verses 36 through 40. This is part of Solomon's prayer. He says to the Lord, If they sin against you, speaking of the the people of Israel, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin... And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. The foreshadowing is really thick at this point. Yet if they return their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity saying, we have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place Hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. Gosh, even before Israel slides headlong into destruction, we see in Solomon's prayer a prayer that they, uh, a pleading with God that they might not do so, but knowing that it's entirely possible that they would slide into sin and be carried captive, Solomon prays ahead of time for a generation that is taken captive to repent and seek the Lord again. And listen to God's response to Solomon's prayer. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. This is how God responds uh, in part to Solomon's prayer. He says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open." And my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now this request on Solomon's part for God's grace and the promise of God to give grace to repentant people has two wonderful corollaries for us in Second Chronicles. Two wonderful illustrations of people seeking God's grace and God uh, giving that grace in return. The first is that King Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah was a, one of those good kings, the few good kings in Judah, who did several things. You'll see these in your, uh, in your worship guide, but let's uh, look at the first. Let's look at Hezekiah restoring uh, worship in the temple and uh, restoring the practice of the Passover. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 11, we read these good words about this king. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, which seems to indicate that the temple of the Lord had fallen into disuse. The doors needed repairing. People had not been worshiping in that place. The doors were shut. Hezekiah opens them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps, and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of God came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to make offerings to him. We read in verses 35 and 36 of the same chapter, following a description of Hezekiah reinstituting the celebration of the Passover. You remember that Passover meal was the meal that the Jews would celebrate to commemorate them being brought out of slavery in Egypt. Hadn't been practiced for quite some time in the land of Judah. And so Hezekiah reinstates the practice of the Passover. And we read at the end of verse 35, Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored, and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. Hezekiah will reach out later on to the scattered Israelites, uh, the people from the northern kingdom who had been uh, scattered kind of throughout the world, calling them to join in repenting and to share in the Passover with the people of Judah. In chapter 31, you can read about Hezekiah destroying the implements of idol worship in the temple. In chapter 33, you can read about him praying to the Lord for deliverance from the Assyrian army. And in all of these places, God answering and responding. Because, as chapter 29, verse 36 says, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people. And the thing came about suddenly. There's hope and grace from God for repenting sinners that is on display for us in the man Hezekiah, but also in the man of Josiah. Now, Josiah follows right on the heels of the crazy king Manasseh. If you turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7, you remember Manasseh, the guy who burned his kids as living uh, sacrifices to false gods. Josiah is the king who comes right after him. And this is how Josiah is introduced to us. Chapter 34, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. These are the false priests whose bones he's burning. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder. And he cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Manasseh, or excuse me, Josiah is a great king who begins his reign even as a young boy, eight years old. By the time he's 20, he's leading this massive revival of proper worship to God. In chapter 34, verses 14 through 21, we, we read about what Josiah does when he hears the law of the Lord read aloud to him. Listen to this, while the uh, many priests were bringing out the money from the temple that had brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. All right, this is interesting. Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses, which means it was previously lost. If he had to find it, it was previously lost. They had lost the only copy or the temple copy of God's word. Hilkiah finds it, and then uh, Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king, and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord. They've given it in the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law... He tore his clothes, symbol of mourning, symbol of repentance, of brokenness. And the king commanded Hilkiah, uh, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the, sec- the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all, to do according to all that is written in this book. Josiah tears down the altars and, the, uh, and uh, destroys the carved idols to these false gods. He mourns when the law of the Lord is read to him and he sees the wickedness of the people saying, God, have mercy on us. In chapter 35, verses 1 through 19, he, like Hezekiah, two kings before him, reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover again. In both instances... Good King Hezekiah and the good King Josiah, in both of these instances, revival breaks out among the Judahites because of the repentance of their kings. I love the grace of God that is waiting in preparation for the day of repentance in Hezekiah's day. We read this in chapter 29, verse 36. And Hezekiah and the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. When the leaders of God's people turn in repentance to God, God honors that repentance. He provides for the people, delivering them from their enemies, preserving His glory among them in the temple and and through renewed worship in that place. I hope that we would not miss 
the role that two things in particular play when it comes to revival, two particular aspects, two particular uh, themes uh, or, or conditions for revival. First, repentance. Remember, God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, that means repent from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Dear friends, revival does not happen without repentance. Great movements, great works of God in the lives of his people do not happen until we confess the sins that we have in our hearts and ask God to make us right with him through continued faith in Jesus. Repentance is vital for revival, but then secondly, see the the role of the word of God in revival. Part of the reason that Judah had gone so far astray into worshiping other gods by Josiah's day was because they literally lost the word of God. A priest found it stashed away in a storage room in the temple gathering dust. And yet when he reads the word of the Lord to Josiah, Josiah immediately recognizes the problem that they are in and he repents accordingly. Christian, do not underestimate the power of God's word clearly read and declared for bringing about repentance. It does not happen apart from his instruction. Revival does not happen apart from his enabling by the Holy Spirit. This is why we teach and preach God's word the way that we do. Not according to my agenda or anyone's agenda, but taking whole books of the Bible, usually passage by passage. That's the the normal pattern for preaching in our church because there's power in the word of God. When the people of God respond to it with repentant hearts. It can be easy when looking at Hezekiah and Josiah, these good kings, to think that God only gives grace to decent kings who lead the people to repentance. You remember Manasseh? Nasty Manasseh, the guy who sacrificed his kids on the fire to false gods? Look with me at 2 Chronicles 33, verses 10 through 16. You may be surprised by what you find there. The verses before, in, in verse 9, we read this of uh, chapter 33. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when we, he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his plea, and he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, even as wretched as Manasseh's sins were, as far as they reached into the realm of evil, God's grace was greater still. Dear friends, there's hope for the Manassas among us in this place. Those of us who have committed such sins that we fear God could never forgive, we do indeed have hope for salvation. We have hope for salvation through repentance from our sin by turning to God with faith in His Son. God's glory is without limit. Our sinfulness knows no end, but God's grace is greater even still than our sin. I love the song that we sang this morning, the chorus that goes over and over. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. As much as you can sin, as far as you can go into evil, there is no place to which you can go that God by his grace cannot reach and reach further still to bring you back to himself. To know that salvation, you need only to turn from your sin and to turn to him in faith, trusting Jesus, his son, who died for your sins 
and rose again from the dead. I'd like to return now to where we started on this final point to the grace of God, to Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication and to God's response toward the beginning of Second Chronicles, chapters 6 and 7. It's not all too uncommon to see the words of Second Chronicles 7.14, scrolling past images of American flags as a call to American repentance and a return to some sort of national Christian religion. We see Second Chronicles 7.14 and the American flag show up all over the place in Christian gift stores and on TV and websites and things like that. I want to note that there are just a few problems with this understanding and application of Second Chronicles 7.14, particularly to the American church. Remember, this is what is said, what God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Here are two problems with applying this verse directly to American, 21st century American Christianity or even American culture. First of all, the people that God talks about in 2 Chronicles 7.14 are not the people of America. They're the people of national Israel some 3,000 years ago. Today, God's people are not national Israel 3,000 years ago. Today, God's people are all those in every country who have placed their faith in His Son, Jesus, who died for sins. Revelation 7, verse 9, the multitude around the throne of God from every tribe, nation, and tongue in conjunction with the command of Jesus to make disciples of every nation in Matthew 28, 18, and 20. These should be enough to tell us that Americans are not God's people. And that Christian Americans are not the ones that this verse primarily belongs to. Second, second problem with understanding seven, uh, Chronicles 7.14 in relation to American Christianity is that God promises in the prayer to heal the land of the people if they repent. And we know that in Christ, our hope for a land, our hope for a dwelling place is not in this world as it is. Our hope for a dwelling place is in the resurrection when God makes this earth new for us to live in. Right? So our, our prayer of repentance, our seeking God, is not to make America a better place to live. Our, our prayer of repentance, our seeking God, is with hope and expectation of living forever in His presence in the new heavens and the new earth. So what happens when we read Second Chronicles 7 in its context and in full? I hope you'll humor me for a moment as I read Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. God's whole response to Solomon's prayer. Listen to it. So thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, the temple, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded and uh, commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish, establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Verse 19. But, but if you turn aside and you forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, 
And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, every passing by, uh, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus and this? Uh, uh, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Think about where the people of Judah start in Second Chronicles and where they end. They start high with the reign of Solomon, and they end very, very low. While God promises hope for those who repent in chapter 7, verse 14, he also promises disaster for those who do not. And it is a disaster of the same sort that Judah faced at the end of Chronicles. God promises that their land will be stolen, the temple will be destroyed, uh, the people will be obliterated because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and that's exactly what happens in the course of Chronicles. We should understand 2 Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 22, as God's warning to the people of Israel of a fate that they seem not, not to be able to avoid. So for a people who are returning to Jerusalem, after being in exile for 70 years, Reading this history that teaches them about the limitlessness of God's glory, the, the, the depth of their sin, and, and the surpassing greatness of God's grace, this response of God to Solomon's prayer then serves to remind these returning people of why they were in exile to begin with. It's a word that vindicates the justice of the Lord to send away his unfaithful people who knowingly forsook him. Second Chronicles 7 is foreshadowing what Israel would ultimately do over the next 300 years following wicked, broken, idolatrous kings. And Second Chronicles 7 serves as a warning to those returning to the land that what God did once, he may yet do again and would be justified in doing so. In this way, Second Chronicles 7 is not a means for bringing revival, but a call to renewed faithfulness in the land that the exiles are returning to. But just so we're not tempted to throw away any call to spiritual renewal at all in chapter 7 of Chronicles, let me remind us of this, our final connection to Jesus, that Christ who died for sins is himself the mediator of God's limitless grace, and that by repentance and faith in Christ, we have access, we have the privilege of knowing and receiving God's limitless grace. The author of Hebrews again says this of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. He says, The former priests were many in number. Remember, the temple's a big deal to the Old Testament people of Israel, and the priests that were serving there had a vital function in the worship of the Lord. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That is to say, there were a lot of priests because they're men, and men die. (laughs) But Jesus, but Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save them to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
Dear friend, you who know the depth of your sin, experience the limitless nature of God's grace through our one mediator, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice once for all, never to be repeated, raised from the dead by his own power to justify us to God. If you want renewal, if you want revival, turn from your sin. Even if you're a Christian, repent anew, repent afresh. Seek God's word and seek God's word made flesh, Jesus the Christ, with renewed heart and renewed vigor. And we will see revival. We will see spiritual awakening in our church and in our neighborhood and in this nation and around the world. Not because we pray a particular prayer, not because we wave a certain sort of banner or or flag over ourselves, but because we are following in repentance and faith the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one and final mediator who gave his life as a ransom for many, Jesus the Christ. We have the awesome opportunity now as a church to celebrate 